We're continuing our worldview series. We're learning about God's rock, uh, God's word rather, which is the rock or the foundation of our worldview. If, if you heard the message Sunday in church yesterday, it was really powerful, really deep, and then kind of came around to that really powerful revy about Jesus being the rock of our life, his words being the rock of our life. You guys were there yesterday, right? Y'all heard that powerful stuff. Well, it's only going to go deeper from here. We're going to be Jacques Cousteau's for Jesus, amen, plumbing the depths of his word, plumbing the depths of, uh, of the Christian worldview compared with others. Can't wait to hear from the man of God, our visionary leader, Joe Irosic. Let's give it up for him. Thank you, my brother. Awesome choice of song, amazing worship time, and I've asked uh, Adam to play that for us on Sunday. That is a great last song. Yeah, that's just... did you? <laughs> See confirmation all day long, and then uh, don't forget uh, TJ to get this from me today. Okay, so uh, let me just go over a few things before we get into the message. This TV needs to be put on in the back, please. One of the things that, that I want us to know here is that chapel time is my time along with you or whoever's speaking to go deep into the things of God, but that doesn't mean when we start going over discussions that you guys have to agree, okay? So when I give you guys time to ask questions afterward, you don't have to agree this is college, okay? So it could be uncomfortable at times, but let's make sure that we invite that environment to be here, that we make that our plan to make sure that we're open to disagreement. So you guys don't have to agree with what I teach when it comes to the details. When it comes to Metro Praise theology and different things, I'll give you some of the basics of, hey, to be a part of Metro Praise, here are some of the parameters we want to stay in. But um, when we're talking about apologetic methods, people can have different apologetic methods here. You can get a book on the various kinds of apologetic methods, and you can pick your own. As long as you believe in apologists or apologetics and doing the work of God, I mean, that's fine. You can be an evidentialist. You could be a classicalist. You could be a presuppositionalist, an axiomist, kind of similar to what I'm doing. So just wanted to make that known to everybody that when you're listening to the things that are coming as more or less approaches to have an open mind to learn, to discuss, to disagree. But then uh, if we have a disagreement, you have to remember that I'm also the moderator of the debate. So I get to set the tone and I get to set the time limit. And chances are I'll probably get three times as much amount of time to talk as you do. So you'll get a two-second opening statement and then I'll get a 30-minute opening statement. So, brother, what you need to do is check to make sure this works next week. So before we come in, it's already ready. So now in the back, unplug the screen and then plug it back in and it should work. Do you know how to do that? Okay, so Jared, come on up and share things about the Word so I can do our technical stuff. And I'll teach Oscar. All right, let's open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 23. Okay, after the introduction, this was the main text. I don't know if you were going to start here. I didn't know how long you were going to take either. All right. And that, and that is going to be the main text, so uh, thank you for that. Thank you. So Jared's ready in season and out of season, which you have to be ready for when you come to chapel. Okay, so let's open up to that passage in Matthew now as we get into God's Word. That was a wonderful uh, introduction there. He was right on point. We have a choice to build our life on the sand of science and experience or on the rock of God's Word. And last uh, yesterday, I told you guys about why we can't build upon the sand of the, the science or on people's experience. And I'll be talking about that a little bit more here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and onward says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these 
words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So going back to our Christian worldview chart, we see clearly here that we don't believe in scientific claims or experiential claims for certainty. We confirmed that last week with the best of science. We showed you that they don't claim that themselves. Just for everybody to be reminded here, we look to uh, theoretical science scientists. Carlo Rovelli, he says, science is not about certainty, and the link is there for you to go check it out. Science is about finding the most reliable way of thinking at the present level of knowledge. He then says the very expression scientifically proven is a contradiction in terms. There is nothing that is scientifically proven. I then showed you that David Hume, Bertrand Russell, the greatest atheistic thinkers of our time, have uh, recognized the problem of induction, which is the problem of guessing. You're always guessing. You're guessing on a hundred different things. And there in the Stanford's dictionary or Stanford Encyclopedia, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, Bertrand Russell says right at the end, if we cannot solve Hume's problem of induction, which he admitted he could not, Hume admitted he could not, and still to this day people know it can't be solved, there is no intellectual difference between sanity and insanity. Because you don't know if you are um, Russell, what's his first name? No, in a beautiful mind. Thank you. Russell Crowe in beautiful mind having a hallucination. And it's a real simple question to ask people. Are there, you just say this to somebody who says, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. Are there people who have irrational minds but think they're rational? So are there people that are insane? Are there people that are schizophrenic, hear things, see things that are not really there? Yes. How do you know you're not one of those people? There's a hundred different ways to go through it. How do you know you're not a brain in a vat? How do you know you're not a solipsist, that you're not the only one, that you're the only one with a conscious mind and everybody else is without a mind and they're in your Sim City world right now? How do you know? How do you know that the past wasn't created 30 seconds ago? I haven't talked to you guys this one in a while, but they're all the same ways of doing the, getting to the same point. How do you know? that the world and the universe wasn't created 30 seconds ago with all of us having memories, food in our belly from an hour ago, whatever, that it's been around for millions of years or thousands of years or hundreds of years or 50 years for us, but it was really just created 30 seconds ago and we're all brand new. We just popped into existence. The game just started. You get that? You don't know. See, that's, that's, it's not just word games, guys. It's really the heart of what atheism and agnosticism is. As I said, from, from this point on, after we get through our presuppositions, because starting next week we'll be talking about the Trinity and all of those things, but from this point on, I don't have to go deep anymore because I think I've given you the arguments. I've shown you how simple they work out, and then I've even showed you when people say, well, you know, this doesn't make sense, or the Bible doesn't make sense, or this is not logical. We show them without God, logic doesn't make sense. Does Tuesday smell like green much? No. How do you, how, okay, are bananas yellow? Yeah, how do you know the difference between those statements? Go ahead and show me materially how you know the difference. Show me how you got that from material. Show me how you got that from your brain. Show me the chemical in your brain that told you the difference there. And all they do, because trust me, I have read them, and they are boring to read, but if you ever like philosophy and want to go to sleep at night, you can read these things. They're, they try to figure ways around it, but they don't. I'm telling you, the majority of atheists are skeptics. They will admit this. They won't fight you over it. The best thing they'll say to you is, you don't have an answer either. And they'll try to pressure you into even. Um, evangelical evidentialism. They'll, they'll, they'll even tell you, as one told me, stop it with all this axiom presuppositional stuff. Let's just debate the evidences. And I don't give them that. And that makes them upset. And then that has them make fun of us because you usually make fun of people in a debate if you're losing. Okay? So they get mad at us. Just like how liberals get mad at conservatives when we show them. That's a life inside of a womb. This chromosome shows this a woman. Show me. You say you believe in shine. Show me that's not a human person. And then they start, well, you're just a bunch of bigots and all this. No, I'm just showing you science. But now you result at the name calling. So they get mad at us when we hold them there because they say, well, nobody knows and you don't know. And then all you have to do is ask them, how do you know I don't know? 
guys, if I go into a laboratory and the guy points to something and says, this is the nucleus, this is the membrane, this is the whatever of the cell, am I going to tell him, that's not right, I, you don't know that. No, the only reason I could tell him that is if I actually knew this stuff to tell him he's pointing to wrong things. If you point to somebody's claim of knowledge and say, you don't know, what does that already assume? I know, I know. So if, if you don't know where we came from, then God could be a possibility. And I will now show you that God is the only possibility. Now let me show you how I do this to go deep with you guys. Just as God gave this to me, and I'm coming into that age, usually between your 40s and your 60s, uh, those 20 years, you come into your professional stamina. A lot of people didn't get to live that long. Martin Luther King Jr. always wondered what he would have been like after he, he, you know, he said his great speeches and all of that. But most theologians and scholars uh, start off young, forming their ideas, and then for the rest of their life, after their 40s, as long as they have a sound mind and can live long, that's when they get the core of what they do if they don't retire. For me, I'm going to keep going all the way till I meet Jesus. But, uh, it, but I, I just saw a show the other day. If, if you ever see me sitting at a table and I'm talking to the wall uh, instead of a person, that's when you know I'm starting to lose my mind, okay? So don't hold anything against me when I start saying at that point, because that's the brain with uh, 80 years of experience just rattling off stuff. But I believe I'm a soul in that brain. Just like Vinny couldn't play the piano good if it was broken, doesn't change him as a player. It's just the piano's broken. What is Alzheimer's? What is mental illness? It's a broken computer. The soul is still there, okay? Uh, that's why we love our loved ones. Uh, we love them, even though they may lose their mind and try to cook a pumpkin in the oven like a turkey, as my grandmother did. And it's funny when you think of it that way, but it was one of the saddest times of my life, okay? But it is true. She tried to cook the pumpkin. So let me show you here how we go a little bit deeper, and I'm going to teach you, as I, I mentioned it before, but I'm going to give you the illustration to this with a one and a zero. Now, this is something God gave me as I listened to David Wood debate a, I think he's a theoretical scientist, or he's a philosopher of science. I can't remember, Michael Shermer, whatever he is. David basically said in his debate, David has his PhD in philosophy, and he also does the Answering Muslims uh, videos of Acts, apologetics, Acts 17 apologetics. He, he said this to him, every scientific discovery proves our God. You'll never prove it otherwise. Okay, so that was a real big statement. But I wanted a way to explain that to people, and this was the way that I could, what I could do, do it as, and I want to do it for you guys. This is the way God gave it to me, just like how God gave me this here. So... If there is a zero here, what we mean by this philosophically is we mean nothingness here. So do zero french fries exist? If I'm describing zero french fries. Do zero cars exist? No. So this is something that you would say like is non-existing. It's non-existing. It is a zero. It is a nothing. That's what we're talking about. No thing has no being, no properties. Not like the atheist trying to say, well, there's nothing that creates something. But let me tell you what nothing is. It has gravity. It has particles. It has, the moment you start describing, it's not a nothing anymore. Just call it that something. That's something that you worship as your God. Call it that. But anyways, um, when we talk to people who are in the anti-God realm, and remember, it's a small population of the world that's that way, maybe 4%. And the majority of them are in China right now, and China is getting rocked by the power of God, and that's why the government's so upset. So there's about 200 million atheists in China. That's the largest nation of them. And there's about 60 million Christians, and they're growing fast right now. They're growing fast in a way that's amazing, so let's pray that that, just, that atheism bubble just pops, you know. Okay, so... Here's the way I want you to understand this. When these kind of people are making their claims and saying they don't know where the universe came from, they don't know where that first molecule came from, even Lawrence Krauss, where did gravity come from? He doesn't know. This is almost like what they're saying. I love this is, you, when we get into this realm of philosophy, we will find that we have a lot of people on our side, in other words. The Hindu people will be on our side. The Muslims will be on our side. Everybody, in one sense, agrees to look at the atheists as the dunce in the room. You know, it's like, look at this guy. You know, look at these guys are foolish. So you'll see the atheists debate them. I mean, that the Muslims debate them and so forth. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't have an ability to 
to rock in a, a Muslim's worldview by showing its inconsistency or Hindu's worldview, which, by the way, I got to talk to our Hindu neighbor yesterday, and he got to confirm to me that Hindus believe in contradictions, because after I said to him, do you believe in nothing, can create something, he said, well, I believe nothing is the sum of everything. And then I said, thank you for reminding me once again that uh, Hindus contradict themselves. Nothing is the sum of everything. That's what he believed. We'll ask them together so you can hear it and write it down. But this is what Rupert Sheldrake said. I believe he's a New Age philosopher in The Science Delusion. He says, it's almost as if science said, give me one free miracle, and from there we'll explain and proceed to explain the entire thing seamlessly and give a cause for every explanation. The only miracle we're asking for is a sudden appearance of all matter and energy in the universe with the laws that govern them. <laughs> Just give us one miracle. That's it, and we'll explain the rest. That's a simpler way of saying it. The atheist says, just give me one miracle, and I'll explain the rest. Well, what miracle do you want? Well, we want everything in the entire universe with its laws, and then we'll explain everything from there. Well, just be a theist then, you know? Just be a deist. Go, go from, you know, that nonsense to something else. So they're going to keep saying, I don't know, I don't know, you don't know, whatever. Now, here's where we begin to show them we do know. If I can give you an answer that you cannot answer, I don't have a zero anymore. I now have a one, and I can even put in there, even if I can't prove it to be true, it's still potentially true, and that potentiality is something you don't have. So let me explain how this works. I can give you the origin of everything in matter, space, and time. God. God is the answer. Now, if they say, I can do the same thing by saying it's a flying spaghetti monster, they've just made our point. Because what are they describing? A God, a false God at that. But they're no longer an atheist. Now they're a deist or, an, or a spaghettiist or whatever. So we give them this answer of God. We give them this answer of God because that is an answer. It's a potential answer. It doesn't have any inner contradictions in it. Any, it's consistent within itself. Now, sometimes they'll try to say, well, can you show us a mind without a brain? Because you're, you're positing something here that they'll say is a contradiction. You're positing a mind that's brainless. And then what we show to them is that the mind is separate from the brain even now, but having a mindless brain is no contradiction. It's conceivable, at least, that you could think the way you think inside of multiple different bodies without having your same brain. Therefore, your soul is not connected to your brain, and so you could have a soulless, uh, a brainless soul. So the example would be like this. Could you imagine being in a cartoon world where you're a bee or you're an ant and you're talking and walking around? Yes, you can conceive that. So the you, that's you, could have a different body. It's possible. So the brain you have doesn't even make you who you are. You're using that brain. So we'll show them those different things. Or they may say something like, well, now you're positing something that's invisible and immaterial. What is that? How could that ever affect things in the material world? If something is immaterial, it can't touch the material world. And then we show with them, how do you know? How, what is the contradiction in something material, uh, uh, immaterial, touching a material world? And then we say to them, if the immaterial world was the source of the material world, could it touch it? Like how I am a physical object, a body, I can touch programming with information that's on hard drives because those things came from my world. Does everybody get that? So like, think of like programming software, what it does on that little chip. Are you impacting that little chip? Yes. But are you this big inside that little chip? No, you're just putting in software codes because you as human beings, we made the software chip to receive information. Now, they may say, well, information is still in the physical world. What you're typing is a computer to a physical world. But this, one, this is where we go. But is the information physical? No information is physical. It may have a physical I type uh, DOS program and show up as DOS, and, and you can see it in a, in a chip. But information is immaterial. How do we recognize the language of information? And this is, once again, theoretical scientists understand this. The language of information 
is immaterial. So I'm passing it, I'm passing the information from biology to technology, but my illustration is I'm passing information. Do you get the argument there? I'm passing that information from one kind of organism to another, and the information is, was never existing other than what I was creating. And so we would say God can do that. But that doesn't even need to be said because most people won't go that deep. But let's just say we settle with God can answer the question to why there's something rather than nothing. God can be the first cause of all causes. God can be the designer. Now, they have a choice. They either try to posit something else that is like our God and they abandon atheism. So they're no longer... Literally, just think of it like they have just taken off their atheist glasses and now there's something else. And then this is what I say, like how Cy Tim Brudencake says, that's something else you've just posited. Is that your actual worldview? Because I won't argue hypotheticals with you as a worldview. I'll give hypotheticals as an example, but I'm not going to argue with someone's hypothetical worldview. Because sometimes sassy atheists, they try to make themselves presuppositionalists, and they'll make their God exactly like our God, but missing some other like qualities. And they'll say, our God loves spaghetti all the time and does whatever silly little things. And they'll say, now try to disprove our God. And it becomes like some little fun little argument they get into. But you see, here's the point. I don't have to argue your false God, because in my mind, all other gods are already idols. I will only argue your God if that is the God you worship. So I'll argue with a Muslim over their God, and we'll talk now, our foundations and so forth, but I'm not going to argue a hypothetical worldview with an atheist who's trying to use that to get around his worldview already failing. So we're going to hold his feet to the fire and say, just like I did with the first guy I had on the streets, as he said, I'm a pragmatist, and I talked about eating people, and now he wants to do nice to people. So I said, now you're modifying pragmatism to include something else, right? So you've just abandoned that view. So you got to be very careful as they're on their foundation. Well, their foundation is sand, but their make-believe foundation. you got to know when they're leaving it to go to someplace else. Okay, so follow me here. We now say we have God. We say God because God said. Our first argument is a circular argument because all foundations are circular. You couldn't argue your existence unless you exist already. And so what a circular argument is, it's different than the arguments that we brought up before. And most of the time, circular arguments are what we call fallacious. They're bad arguments. So you can't say um, um, Desi's empanadas are the best because Desi said my empanadas are the best, therefore Desi's empanadas are the best, or whatever you like to cook. See, that's a circular argument. You started with your conclusion that your empanadas were the best. You started with your conclusion, and then you reasoned to your conclusion. Also, when you say a statement like that, it's called a tautology, where it's Desi's empanadas are the best because Desi's empanadas are the best. There's no logic, logical process in there. You're just stating it as if it's already been proven logically, and you're arguing with it in a circle instead of arguing with it linearly, point one, point two, point three, or moving down, point one, point two, and then therefore a conclusion here, which could be something like, this would be like the inductive method. Um, Desi makes great empanadas. Everybody who tastes them say they're the best. Therefore, according to everybody who's tasted them, her, her things are the best. But you see, there's steps in there, like other people are looking at, there's examinations, et cetera. People can test it. Other people can look at it. So we, we are going to posit God exists because God says he exists. He exists. And the example I use for that is if you're on an island and you don't know anything, you can only know what somebody tells you, right? And so we are on this island called the earth, and we only know what we're told. So all of these things are like our presuppositions, things like axioms. Those are the language of, 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 of our foundations, in other words. So our main foundation is God, and we believe that he explains all of the rest of these things. We don't believe yours do. So we believe, like if you're looking at a triangle like this, we believe your bottom is out right here. And the way I call this, as I mentioned yesterday, it's like trying to lay concrete as you're skydiving or play Jenga while you're skydiving. It's impossible. So you've leaped from having a foundation to now having presuppositions, propositions, and doing things in science like the rest of us, okay? So I'm positing God here. I'll even let you have a circular argument because it's only fair that we all have the circular arguments be free and available for all of us. So if somebody says, well, I'll say the universe is what's always been here. Now what we have to ask them is, does the universe have a mind? 
If the universe does not have a mind, are you greater than things without a mind? Uh, because look, this has being, but it doesn't have personhood. Are things with being and personhood greater than things that just have being? Yes, then you're greater than your God. You have a mind and being. Your God is just nothing but electricity force. Okay? So we show them that your worldview didn't answer much, did it? So what's the purpose? And then you ask things like this. If it doesn't have a mind, how does it start and stop things like the universe? If it doesn't have a mind, how is their design? How are their laws? So if they try to retreat to the universe being their starting point, it fails, and they come right back to them not knowing. Now we show them that God answers this question, that God is literally that foundation, his knowledge, the things that he's told us. Do I have to understand it perfectly? No. Do I have to have perfect knowledge of it? No. I can have faith just like you have faith in things. Because by the way, everybody's using faith. I can have faith in my foundation, and it's reasonable to have as long as it's not self-contradicting. So can I say that God is triune, even though I can't prove God is triune, that I have faith in that. Yes, because there's nothing contradictory about God being triune. There's nothing contradictory about God creating the universe. If we could all imagine that the universe could have been created 30 seconds ago, what's wrong with imagining it was created in six days? Just like I've showed you with the CGI argument, you know, in, in the movies, they create things all the time. Why couldn't God create this as a full-grown universe? There's nothing illogical. But if they start positing things as their foundations that are illogical, it shows that they're back to the square, uh, you know, the starting point of not knowing. Okay, now watch. Most atheists will admit they don't know. Most atheists are in the realms of skeptics. Most atheists, and I said all that to say this, most atheists already know that nobody can know. Uh, well, they'll say nobody can know. That's, that'll be their thing, but we say God knows. And then what they'll try to do is say neither can you. Now we show them. Did I not just give you a possible foundation? That's where you have to hold it. Did I not just give you a possible? Even if you don't believe it, I'm asking you, is it an answer that you don't have? And I've given you the rebuttals to the two biggest explanations that if they say, how can an immaterial thing touch a material thing? I showed it through information. And we could say power as well. That's another discussion. That power can be pushed and things like that from one thing to another. And we see that from mental activity to brain states. The mental activity has the power to change a brain state. And then once again, we're not even all powerful. So could a God create something different than himself and then impact it with his power. Absolutely, still nothing contradictory there. And then the other thing that I said is that, uh, uh, well, the first one was if they try to say that the material thing can't touch the other thing. What was the other one I said before that? You got to keep notes, guys. No, 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 no. What was my point? Come on, guys. You guys got to keep up. No. It was information. Yeah, but that still goes all the thing I'm trying to show you from the material world to the whatever. Uh, oh, and disembodied brain, a uh, mind that's disembodied. Please take notes. Nobody's taking notes. You guys have got to take notes. I listened to my sermons two and three times, guys. Come on. You guys don't trust me. You will not remember all. You didn't even remember the first argument that I showed you, that a mind can be disembodied. Okay? And we showed that a mind can be disembodied if I can imagine my mind in different bodies. Do you guys understand that? If I can imagine my mind in a different body, then it can be disembodied. And can it be without a brain? Yes, because I can imagine it in a computer software. So who is to say that the spiritual nature isn't something greater than software or whatever Wi-Fi is? Okay. So now we, we put here, we put here, all these markers are bad. Would you find a good marker for me, please, Jerry? We put here, our, our answer is God. Now watch this. Everybody say zero. Thank you. I've gone from zero to what? To one. Now, if one thing is at least possible, now from that one thing, you could have a million things. Okay, so let me give you an example. Is it possible for a married bachelor to exist? No, so that's a zero. That stays at zero. Is it possible for something to come from nothing? No, that's a zero. Is it possible for information to come from a non-mind? No, that stays at zero, right? I have now given you a one for one of your questions. What was the one? Just pick one. Origin, mind, design. Which one do you guys want to pick? Pick one. Design. God is the best explanation for design. But then now watch. What is designed? 
how many things in the universe are designed. Now I go from the universe itself being designed to every little star and every little molecule and every little person and every little animal. Now I've just gone to every little thing. And I said, all of those are now arguments against you. Every one of them. Everything in the physical universe. Then we go, well, we now not only have one in that sense, we have one for first cause. And this is huge. This is, people just blow over first cause, not even understanding that this was one of the biggest debates of the entire Greek world was whether or not motion and cause even existed. That is a whole nother discussion. And so we have the first mover, as Aristotle would talk about, the first prime mover. Thank you. You can just set them right there. And then you could throw these two away for me, please. Seems like it's all the greens that are left. So the first prime mover argument answers the question to where all motion comes from. But hold on. We get a point there because we've answered where all motion comes from. But how many things are in motion? I'm in motion, you're in motion, this molecule is in motion, the star is in motion, the galaxy is in motion, that other galaxy is in motion, this thing's in motion, a motion in the ocean, I guess. Yeah. yeah, the ocean's in motion. Do you guys understand that we go from where they are at zero, and the way I like to look at it is if we took on each argument individually. So let's go from design, zero, or one to infinity. Let's go to cause, zero, one, two, infinity. Let's go to, um, did I already say information? Okay, I said design. Information, zero, one, two, infinity. So you just keep the scoreboard. That's how bad their view is compared to Christianity. Does everybody understand what I just demonstrated? I showed you that every place they say, I don't know, we say we do have an answer, and then within that answer, we now have millions and billions of support for it. So it's not just a 50-50 thing here. Is there a God or is there not a God? According to the observable working of the world, there is 99.9999999999 chance that there is a God because it would be impossible otherwise. And I, I don't even like doing probabilities like that, but I just wanted to make that for you to show you that even if they want to think about science in such a, such a way, we show them according to their own probability, we show them according to their own logic that their argument is destroyed. But how do I, how do I go from 99.999% certainty to 100% certainty? How do I do that? How do I have 100% certainty? What's that? I start from God. I start from God. Now, in, in all actuality, and this is what a little bit of Vinny and I were talking about, can anybody do any of this without already starting from God? No, they're already suppressing the knowledge of God. So that's why we go back to Romans chapter 1. Go to Romans chapter 1, right around what? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, all of these qualities that we're talking about, design, information, a movement, all of God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, that's where they come from, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So is the endeavor of science a bad thing? No, it's actually a good thing. And we should do it and see, and see uh, what I like to use the word evidence, but use that lightly. We should see the fingers of science pointing towards God. We should see the, the breadcrumbs leading to God. But that's not what first gives us the ability to do that. We don't start with science to do science. What gives us the ability to even understand the qualities of God is that we're made in his quality as a mind in the image of God. So what comes first, the scientific endeavor or the God of science? The, sci the God of science. What comes first, all of these observations or us being a, an observer? You're an observer first. That's by God's def, uh, the design. 
And then we go back to our passage here, and now we see that there's no way for them to build a worldview on any of these things and have success. Anything they try to do here will never be certain. We'll agree with them, even though it points to our God. So they must answer the questions of why this is the way it is. And so now we just go right back to the chart. Why is it my best guesses in science point to God? Because God's word made me to be an observer and a discoverer of those things. So is experience and science in of itself bad? No, it points to our God. But is it certain? No, it's not certain. And then if someone were to say, okay, let's get away from all this science stuff. It's just unreasonable to think about a God. You know, then we bring them to the argument of God from reason and logic. It's the same thing. It's built into the scientific discovery. You can't do science without logic, but I kind of want to separate it because sometimes people try to separate it. So they may say, hey, we agree with you. Uh, science is all just the best we know. But there are things that we know beyond science which are uh, the laws of logic. And this is where Plato would come from in the world of forms. So let me just show you Plato in the world of forms so you guys can see it. I've talked about it. What childhood show do I compare the world of forms to? Sesame Street. And what do I say? The letters floating around them, talking, them doing those different things. Uh, would you please move this, Jared? Thank you, sir. The letter, uh, the world of forms, okay, the theory of forms or theory of ideas is a viewpoint attributed to Plato which holds that non-physical forms or ideas represent the most accurate reality. So there are non-physical forms of everything we see here and they're the original and we're just copies of it. And it goes beyond just the laws of logic, but the, the people don't care about that. They just use it for the laws of logic. But there's actually a perfect copy of Desi in this world. And there's a perfect copy of this church in that world. And there's a perfect copy of everything we see here in that world. That was their way of describing creation and origins and where things came from. That was why they also fought over whether or not things were actually moving. They had to decide, were we moving closer towards something or away from something? Or was movement all an illusion of what we were statically in the world of forms? So like the world of forms is just making us as claymation in a sense. And we're not moving. It's just the pictures of how we're being taken of in reality. Like time is moving. But but I'm not actually, uh, you know, like a claymation running. It's it's. I'm in one form, and then I'm like this in one point of time, and then I'm like this in another point of time, but nothing is really moving around me. It's just the pictures that are moving. I know it's a little bit confusing, but uh, maybe we could go into that too. Let me just show you here. Um, which philosopher did that? Which Greek philosopher denied motion? Zeno's paradox of motion are set at, okay, let's go here, philosophy of motion. Philosophy of motion is a branch of philosophy concerned with exploring questions on the existence and nature of motion. I know that would be like to us, like, duh, but no, they went so deep, man, um, of motion. What uh, of motion? The central questions of this study concern the epistemology and ontology of motion. Whether motion exists as we perceive it, what it is, and if it exists, how does it occur? The philosophy of motion is important to the study of theories of change in the natural systems and is closely connected to studies of space and time in philosophy. The philosophy of motion was a central con concern to ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, particularly to pre so Creatic philosophers such as Parmenides, Zeno of Elia, Hercletus, and Democritus. As such, it was influential in the development of philosophy of science in general. So you can begin to study these out, but actually, um, the tortoise and the hare, do you guys know that? Uh, the reason why the tortoise runs is because the hare has to cross in an infinity before he can run. And that's from a Greek paradox. That's from, I believe, the paradox I was about ready to pull up right here, Zeno's paradox, is that if you have to cross an infinite, 
You can never move anywhere. The universe is infinite. We're never moving anywhere. And so um, potential infinites always exist. So imagine I have here an inch. I divide it in half. Now I divide that half and half. I divide that half and half. That's kind of like Ant-Man, if anybody remembers what happens with Ant-Man. If he gets caught in that thing, he keeps slicing in half for, for an infinity. And he just, he just keeps going smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. He just keeps going, okay? So the idea is, can the rabbit cross an infinity? But we cross infinities all the time. So are we crossing in infinities? And then, therefore, time doesn't really exist in the infinite, so they thought the, the world was infinite. If we're crossing it all the time, it must not exist. Or if we have to cross it, then we're never really moving. We're kind of like the claymation. Things are moving us, or time with snapshots of us, but when I put the claymation video together, it makes it look like all these things are moving, because obviously they knew, like, I'm moving my hand right now. They weren't stupid. Always remember this. If you don't understand people like this, don't think they're stupid before you start to understand more about what they're saying, okay? It's all they had time to do was study these things, okay? Well, but, but just take the claymation thing. It's going from here to here to here, and then when you put those snapshots together, it looks like this. Now, in my mind, that would still show we're moving, but in their mind, it wasn't the motion that we would think of. It was just the way we're perceiving the motion, but I'm not actually moving. I'm a claymation. That's the best I can help you understand that, okay? Uh, but let's go here to Zeno's paradoxes. Which one did he have? Uh, an argument from finite size. Yeah, paradoxes of motion. Okay, Achilles and the tortoise. The second argument was called, uh, what is that, how do you pronounce that? Achilles. Accordingly, from the fact that Achilles was taken, oh, it wasn't a, a, the hare. Achilles is the fastest man in the universe. That, that was the original makeup of this, but I think it turn, turned into a rabbit later on. Achilles was taken as a character in it, and the argument says that it's impossible for him to overtake the tortoise while pursuing, when pursuing it. For, in fact, it is necessary that what, it, what is to overtake something, being overtaken it, first reach the limit for which what is fleeing set forth. In the time in which what is pursuing arrives at this, I am so confused at what I'm reading. And thus, every time in which what is pursuing will traverse the interval, that's where it comes to the infinity, which what is fleeing, being slower, has already advanced. What is fleeing will also advance in some amount. So he can never catch up if he keeps crossing through an eternity. I think that's what it's saying. I hope that's what it's saying. If it's not the interval, I think that's what the interval for a limited. The paradox turns some consideration chasing a tortoise. And this one's chasing this. On the face, I would catch the tortoise, which would break motion. Maybe that's not the infinite one. Cross an infinity. He has to cross. Yeah, yeah, he has to cross. See, the interval, Achilles passes through the sequence of points, point nine, point nine, nine, point nine, 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 nine. Yes, but does such a strange sequence, yeah, comprise of an infinite Infinity of members, exactly. So he can't cross that inch, in other words, because he has to keep crossing the infinite of it, the, the run-on of it. If you want to disprove that or find out more about that, I would be happy to know I'm misinterpreting him. But uh, we will move from him. Now back to the world where we know motion exists. How do we know motion exists? Because God created motion. He said he did. He said he created these things, okay? Now, when we look at logic, and somebody may want to say, well, this science stuff, I totally agree with you. We can't know anything without logic, and logic, as I was showing you before, exists in the world of forms. It is out there, and it doesn't need a God for its explanation. What are we going to say back to them? What are we going to say? I've already showed you how to answer this, but what are we going to say? I've already talked about the world of forms. I've already mentioned Plato so many different times here, guys. Come on. Professor is allowed to help. So what are you just going to, don't even try to think what I'm going to say. Just give me an answer. No, I don't answer, ask questions again. You can ask someone else to do that for you. Does anybody remember? Give me an answer, your best answer. Imagine you meet one on the streets. What are you going to say? I don't clarify the question either. You have to answer now. We're at that point of, she'll help you. Yes. It comes from the world of forms. Yes. Yes. I'm asking you to disprove Platonism. I've already heard people say this. They still use these arguments. That's why I showed you the world of forms. Did you guys get lost in our Achilles example of motion? I hope you did, and that's why I hope you're taking notes. 
No, you're in a totally different world. You don't understand the question. Sorry. Come on, guys. Give us your best explanation. He said the world of forms. I've already given that to you. He would say, I don't need God. You just posited something we don't need. Uh, the, the shortest answer is usually the best answer. Occam's razor. I have a world of forms. You have a God that makes everything else messy now. I have a very simple explanation, the world of forms. There you go. Does logic have a mind? Does the world of forms organize itself? How does the world of forms know the difference between Tuesday smells like green much and bananas are yellow? And now they are stuck with the same thing of every other atheist. The world of forms has not helped them out. Just like when people try to say our universe doesn't need a creator because it came from the multiverse. And they think of the multiverse as a machine, a mechanism, kind of like how our cells in biology keep making new cells. They think this is happening in physics where new universes are coming out. And so time and space doesn't mean anything to the multiverse. The multiverse could be as small as a, as a little minute thing or it could be... 10 million times bigger than our known universe. But the point is, it has no limit of time. It has no limit of power. It could keep creating universes like our little cells keep multiplying. How do you disprove the multi-universe? Where did it come from? Where did this multi-universe creator come from? This doesn't make any sense. And it's the same thing with the world of forms. Where did the world of forms get a mind to organize these things? We're looking back now with a mind. Does that have a mind? If not, then I'm greater than the world of forms. I understand the difference between a banana is yellow or Tuesday smells like green much. Does the world of forms know how to recognize that? How? If you say it does, how? I want to know how. See, it's not an adequate explanation. It's not an adequate worldview. The question was originally, how do you disprove someone who believes in the world of forms? That's why you guys must pay attention. I'm giving you things to think about. Now, we do a nice little wordplay here. We showed that logic comes from logos in the Greek language, and then we show that the logos is called Jesus in our New Testament, and based on the Word of God, not based on wordplay, but based on the Word of God, that Jesus is the foundation for all logic. That's just a little wordplay that I put in to help people, but it's not our main argument is that Logos is the form for, uh, is the foundational word for log logic. I'm not trying to make a point there. Otherwise, uh, you could just go off into nonsense. What we're saying is, is that Logos is given a name, a person, and the person is Jesus. And from the person of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, come all of these things that we now experience. So let's go to our scriptures here and understand how God is the word in both person and written form. When we say that God is the word, uh, Jesus is the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, what are we referring to? We're referring first and foremost to the person of Jesus. Verse 2 continues on, he was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now go on to verse 14. The Logos, the logic, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. That's for the first time we now understand in John's gospel the word is the Son of God. Okay, just to keep up. Who came from the Father, and that's the first introduction of the Father. Now we understand that the God, the, the God of the Word is facing is the Father. So there's not two gods, and there's not one God pretending to be the Son and then pretending to be the Father. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, that's referring to Jesus, the Son. When it says, and the Son was with God, this, uh, the Word was with God, it's saying the Son was with the Father. And then when it says the Word was God, it's not saying now the Son is the Father like oneness Pentecostals. No, it's saying, and the Son was God like the Father, had the same nature as the Father had. Do you guys understand John 1.1? 1, 1? That will help you disprove Mormonism. That will help you disprove Jehovah Witnesses. That will help you disprove um, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, the black Hebrew Israelites, as well as oneness Pentecostals, if you just know how to properly interpret that one verse. 
Now it continues on into verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So he comes full of grace. Now the Bible says in 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So when it talks about God being love, God is love. This is the person of love humanity knows. It's Jesus. When it talks about God is truth and that God is the source of all truth, this is the person of Jesus, the mediator to all of humanity. That's why later on in John he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So he comes full of truth, full of logic, full of reason. Even in Isaiah, let us reason together. All of this finds its origin in Jesus. That's the one we're made in the image of because from him, look at it again, from him came all things. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Through him or for him are all things. And that's what it even says in Romans. For from him and to him and for him are all things. This is how it works. So that's why he comes full of grace and truth. Because we wouldn't have any grace and truth if it wasn't for Jesus. And then in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So we see here that the word, the logic of God is in a person called the Son who came in the flesh and became Jesus. Being technical, Jesus as God and man did not exist in eternity. The Word, the Son existed in eternity. Then in time, He took on flesh and became a man. Jesus is the name of the God-man. The Word was what He was and is known by the Son before He was ever in flesh. Does everybody get that? You shall call Him Jesus. He wasn't known as Jesus in the Old Testament. He was known just as the Word or the angel of the Lord or the Son because He's the Son of Man comes next to the Ancient of Days in Daniel, and then He receives all this glory and honor. So... Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever, what does that mean? That means the Word, the Son, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like I'm the same whether I put on a spacesuit or not, or whether I put on Versace or not, I'm still the same. Jesus taking on flesh did not change his nature of being God. It just added the nature of humanity, just like you add them hoops on or that gl those glasses on or whatever. It doesn't change who you were before that. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 talks about when we face judgment that we're being judged by the word. Literally the word, the logic of God will judge us and separate the sheep from the goats. Chapter 19, verse 11. I had all these notes for uh, yesterday, by the way. I just couldn't get to them. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. See, these are all truth claims. These are all things to do with knowledge claims, uh, epistemological claims. He's faithful, he's unchanging, and he is true. He is true. With justice, he judges and wages war. So this is where the judgment comes from. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. So there's some kind of secret name here, which is cool. I can't wait to hear about that. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. So he's looking kind of crazy in our eyes, coming down. Dripped in blood, right? And he his name is what? The Word of God, the Logos of God, the logic of God, the reason of God. Who is the one who wrote the book of Revelation? John. John is the one who understands this. That's why I believe God's given him all those heavy revies. His gospel takes on a different form. His epistles are very unique. And then his revelation is unknown. I mean, Paul says he went there, but he couldn't write on it. So it's the only thing we get is from him. And he ties all of his concepts together. So John is such an important part of the New Testament. The armies of heaven fo were following him, and this will be us riding on white horses. If we're, if we're up in heaven, if, if we're still here, we'll be shouting as they're coming. Hey, you know, all excited. Um, right, well, you know, and the rapture will be happening first, so I should say the rapture will happen. So we don't actually want to be here shouting, yay. That would mean we missed the rapture. Yeah, we would have been left behind. We would be like a backslider and be like, oh, man, I missed this. But yay, you're coming back. I'm ready now. Okay. Riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth. Watch this is a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. What is the sword of the Spirit? 
the Word of God. It is His literal words that strike them down. Why does He have power in His words? Because He is the voice of the Father. With all the power of the Father, it's in His words. And that's where the universe came from. That's where we see in common with the Hindus, the Om, the first sound. That's where we're in common with the, the Greeks, the first sense of logic, Logos. You know, These are the terms that we're purposely using, our writers are purposely using to show this is our God. This is our God. Our God is more powerful than all of your philosophies, all of your ideas. His mouth is what strikes down the nation. His words, rather, is what strikes down the nations. It says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress in the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh, he has the name written, a tattoo. Come on, Jesus has tattoos. King of kings and Lord of lords. So he is the word. But does the Word of God get the same privilege as being titled that? Yes, because it comes from the Spirit of Christ. We even prove Christ's divinity by showing in the New Testament that when Peter said they wrote by the Spirit of Christ, how could Christ do that unless he was God? Because all the holy, all the prophets say they spoke by the Holy Spirit. But Peter says that was by the Spirit of Christ. Show that to a Jehovah Witness. It's the Spirit of Christ that was given to them. The Holy Spirit comes from Jesus, and that's his Spirit. It's not that they're the same person. It's that the Spirit, the person, comes from Christ, takes on the name of Christ, takes on his words. That's why in John 14, 15, 16, he says he doesn't speak on his own behalf. He speaks on behalf of what I say, okay? And, he's, and Jesus says what the Father says. But the scriptures come into being at a time and a place through men. Remember, we don't believe they're written by angels. We believe that they're written by men. And can we argue their validity? Yes, but I will never argue textual criticism and the historicity of the Bible with an atheist that can't even give me a foundation of their reason or their existence. Don't get trapped chasing your tail trying to explain your axiom to them when they don't even have an axiom. Just say it simply like this. If God existed, could he create a word that could be maintained throughout history and be true? Yes. Is it, and if they don't even believe that, say no man would mess it up. Then they ask him, is it illogical? Is there anything illogical with this? God gives a message to human beings. Number two, human beings by his power uh, preserve that message. Therefore, I have that message today. Is there anything illogical about that? What have I said that's illogical? So my axiom makes sense. Get out of my axiom. Give me yours. Let's go head to head. Then this is where, by the way, now we go with other religions because it is fair for them to critique the Bible if they have a book or, an, or a revelation for us to critique. Now that's where we go book into man. So we will have to critique the Bible, uh, allow them to critique the Bible as we're critiquing the Quran, and we'll see what God is the true God. Now we know that it is the God of the Bible, but we must allow that for the apologetics, and you see that in our earliest apologetics that they were defending against these Roman, uh, the Greek philosophers and so forth, standing on their scriptures. So the examination doesn't mean we're giving up ground. Some people don't even do that. They won't even debate the Word of God. You'll actually hear them say, I won't debate the Word of God. And they don't even have to be a presuppositionalist. It's just they're sassy. I don't debate the Word of God. God said that settles and it's over, okay? But I'm okay with debating the Word of God as long as, as long as you have an axiom that can support your worldview. If you're willing to do that, we'll go head to head. Is the Bible the Word of God or the Quran? I'll do that debate. That's fine. I'll do it with somebody like Sam Shimon because that's not my expertise, but that, that's an acceptable debate. And that is what we do with the other religions. Just real quickly, as you guys start opening up for class, so as it comes written, it is the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God continually because when you receive the Word of God, when you heard it from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is indeed at work in those who believe. So you're hearing it from men. God is speaking it through men, writing it through men, but when you hear it, you know it's not from men. It's the Word of God. And the people writing it are claiming it, and once again, it's our choice to believe it or not. Yes, do we make a choice to believe? Yes, you can believe or not believe. But just remember, everybody still has another foundation they're believing into, right? So that's our foundation, and we're not afraid to use the word faith, but you have more faith than us in some ways. Oh, we should say you have more make-believe faith. We have more genuine faith based on evidence. Luke chapter 11, 22 through 27, Jesus was saying these things, and a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is your mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. How many wish I would have said that yesterday on Sunday? That would have given some ammo, right, to our friends and family that are Catholic. But that's the truth. 
Oh, bless your mother. Bless. And isn't that just like Catholics today? We just love the Mary, Virgin Mary. We just love her. And Jesus is like, forget that. Love the Word of God and obey it. So he calls it the Word of God. And then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 16-17, can never discuss the Word of God without this passage. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by him. That means he inspires the people. And if people don't understand inspiration, just show them in the Word, by the Spirit of. That's what inspire means. It has the word spirit in there, in, in, in the Spirit of. Who? Well, Beethoven was inspired in the spirit of the beauty of the world, or the this, or the heartbreak they will go through. Songwriters are inspired by that, to write poems or whatever. Uh, Elder, uh, Edgar Allan Poe was inspired by the spirit of death, you know? Well, what were they inspired by? The Holy Spirit, the person of God as the Holy Spirit. So all uh, scripture is through theonoustos in the Greek, God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I want you to understand this. Everybody look up at this, please. As you're, as you're getting ready for class, I understand. But watch this. Does the Bible say I'm only thoroughly equipped for the things that have to do with church? No, I'm thoroughly equipped for how many good works? Every good work. And what did uh, Sir Isaac Newton say about the Bible? Remember we learned about that? What did Sir Isaac Newton say? He said, we account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. What also did he write? He said, I have a fundamental belief. That's my axiom. I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God, written by those who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. So does that mean we just look at the Bible and ask, like, how big the fish was for Jonah? No, we look at the Bible, and then we go out into the world, and we do all that we're called to do. We're equipped now to go do it by the word of God, not only in a philosophical sense, do we have a foundation, but now we have a motivation and an inspiration. And I truly believe the more godly we are, the more we study God's word, the more answers to the diseases we find, the more technology we have. And that's why I trace back the scientific revolution to Christians, universities to Christians, modern-day hospitals to Christians, the first democratic nation to Christians. All of that works when Christians work. The ending of slavery, like I said, around the same time while we're setting the slaves free here, Zulu uh, African tribes are enslaving their own people and still to this day, it, you know, it's a broken world, people. The only way we fix it is by building upon the Word of God. Let's build our nation on the Word of God. Let's build our science on the Word of God. Let's build our technologies on the Word of God. Amen? Now I'm going to preach it again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Help us to build upon the, so the solid foundation of your Word. May our life's, uh, life, our life's desire be to know and study your Word and apply it to every part of our life. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,